Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made, and I wish that I Talk to me and tell me I can change. Don't be afraid. Just walk with your head up high. Don't be afraid. Just take it one step at a time. Don't give up on your dreams no matter how small. Hey, welcome to Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is August 22nd, 2014. I am happy to have on my show... What the heck is going on here? All right, sorry, this was a weird... I was going to read... Managing all the tabs here up here. So we are interviewing Anne Fletcher. I'm happy to have her on. And her latest book is Inside Rehab. And Anne has written Sober for Good uh, and many other books. I'm going to bring her on right now because I know that she is sitting in the queue. Where are you? There you are. Hi, Anne. You're live. Welcome to the show. Hi. Good to be with you. How you doing? Good. Well, I should say. I'm a writer. I should say well. (laughs) You're well. Yes, you're a good writer. Well, I have seen you on HuffPost Live, and I'm getting some feedback. Do you hear that? I do not. Okay. And I am on a landline, so. Yeah, I think you're good. And and you don't have any the show playing live as well. No. You don't. Okay. No. Um, There's somebody else out there that's listening. Uh, If you can. Just text me if you can hear that feedback. I don't want to continue. I'm gonna. Would, I would hang up and call you back. You know what? Let me do this. Let's both. Uh, I can't hang up, but if you hang up, I'm gonna call you back from the dashboard here. Okay. At okay. The, so I should hang num- up. Uh, yeah. Let me just get this number. The number that's uh, that you gave me that's showing up. Yep. Is it okay to call you back on? Yep. Yeah. Let me do it. Okay. I hear this feedback. Okay. I'll call you right back. Okay. Let's try okay. it. Okay. Bye. All right. Thanks. This has happened once before, so I don't really need to buy those. Hang on there, folks. We are going to dial out and get Anne back on in a way. So let's see. Here we go. Hello. Oh, that's so much better. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> good. All righty. So... 
Can we talk about why you decided to write this book? Yeah, it's kind of a long story, but we we have an hour, right? Yeah, I won't we spend have an the, hour. I, I won't spend I, the whole hour talking about that, but um <laughs> why I decided to write this book. Um well, I um you know, I've my interests in my career have long been about behavior change. How how it is that we get people to overcome unhealthy habits, um destructive habits. And I, my career, what I was trained in is um, nutrition science. Um, I have a master's degree in nutrition science. Mm -hmm. And I became a nutritionist specializing in weight management and obesity treatment very early in my career. And I discovered very early on, I worked for about five years in obesity treatment, and threw away my didn't throw it away because it's important but i realized very early on that we can give people all the knowledge in the world about fat crams and calories and information right. about balancing calories in and calories out but knowledge doesn't change behavior and i became really fascinated with motivation and understanding how people change and I, and, and I really realized at that point in my life that I really didn't want to do clinical work. Interestingly, I am doing some clinical work now. I'll tell you about that later, but um, in, in addiction. Um, but um, I didn't want to do clinical work, and I became a writer. And my dad's a writer, so I guess I kind of have it in my genes. And I started writing books about health and wellness, mainly about weight management. And I started studying people who were successful, successful at weight management, Right. Um, because we always heard about the failures. And they became a whole series of books, the Thin for Life books, about people who had lost serious weight and kept it mm -hmm. off. Because we always hear that everybody gains it back. Well, that's not right. true. And yeah. I really wanted to understand the success stories. Mm -hmm. So after writing three books in that vein, I got tired of it, and I wanted to write something different. And because of my own personal struggles with problem drinking, I really, I knew that there were many different ways to overcome drinking problems, mm -hmm. and I convinced my editor that I could use the same model that is studying success stories to right. write a book about problem, about people who had overcome drinking problems, mm -hmm. and I conv convinced her that I, I could do that, and she said, okay, go ahead, write a proposal, and that became my first book on addiction, which was Sober for Good. Right. And that came out about 12 years ago. And for that book, I interviewed more than 200 people who had overcome drinking problems in many different ways, serious drinking problems. Mm -hmm. um, so they recovered with some, many of them with AA, but many of them did it on their own, smart recovery, women for sobriety. Mm -hmm. And these were people who had at least five years of sobriety to be part of the book. Mm -hmm. Um so this was, you know, my really trying to understand how it is that people maintain long-term sobriety regardless of how they did it. Um so so that's, you know, kind of some background of how right. I wrote my first book about addiction treatment. From there, I I thought that would be my only book ever on right. addiction treatment and yeah. um I went back to writing about weight management, wrote a book about successful teen weight maintainers. Um and um 
believe it or not, uh, a book idea came to me in a dream after that book, had, the, wait, the teen book, had been out for a couple of years. Yeah. And it was amidst the Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan, the first round of their going in and out of rehab. Right. And about six years ago now, I'd say, mm-hmm. and I dreamt that I was in a women's rehab. Now, I've never been to rehab, right. but I dreamt that I was in a women's rehab, and I was in one of those little white johnnies, you know, that oh. they put on people, some kind of a johnny, right. Right. going around, which I, I never went to a rehab where they actually make people wear those things. Maybe they did in the olden days. Mm-hmm. And I was going around interviewing women, and that's all I remember of the dream. But I woke Love up at 4 in the mo- morning, and I right. thought, you know, people have no clue what goes on in rehab. They think it's right. whatever they see on TV with Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan. Mm-hmm. And for years, Dr. Thomas McClellan, who is the director of and found, co-founder of the Treatment Research Institute, in Philadelphia, who has studied addiction treatment, basically what's right and what's wrong with it for mm. his entire career. Mm. Um, I befriended him in writing Sober for Good, mm. and he had been telling me basically how how poor our addiction treatment system is. Yeah. And I knew that, and I thought, you know, somebody really needs to write a book about this. Right. And so I called him up, and I said, you want to write this book with me? Somebody needs to tell people what's going on in addiction treatment, what they can expect. You know, I knew things like there's no evidence that outpatient treatment or that residential treatment is any better than outpatient treatment, and people are spending tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, thousands yeah. of dollars and they don't know any better. So yeah. he, he said, you know, I, he thought about it, and he said, I don't, I don't have time, but I'll I'll help you with it, you know, here and there as I can. And so I wrote a book proposal, and that became Inside Rehab. Mm-hmm. So it is a long story, but that's how I started the research for a book that became uh, almost a five-year process of traveling around the country, wow. visiting rehabs, interviewing people, uh, more than 100 people who had been to rehab recently, mm-hmm. and leading experts in the field. I visited 15 programs of all different shapes and sizes, everything from celebrity rehab to programs that treat outpatient programs that treat indigent people, mm-hmm. 12-step facilities, non-12-step facilities. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really a study of the addiction treatment system in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I because I've just finished my film and I'm really in the process of some post uh, as far as clearing everything, I haven't had time. I bought it like months ago. And I decided, you know, as soon as we agreed, then I was going to really plow through it and look. And, you know, at first I thought I wasn't going to like it for whatever reason, you know what I mean? Because I'm such a, I've gone, I'm one of those, like, was an insider who flipped and just really upset about a lot of stuff going on in AA. But what I like about your book is that I think it is the first book of its kind, isn't it, that's been published by a major publishing. Would would you say that it's the first book of its kind? That's really uh, yeah. Yes, it is. Um, shortly after, um, uh, not not to say it's the only book of its kind, shortly after my book came out, um, David Sheff wrote a book um, that is in a similar vein. Um, I don't think he traveled around and visited rehabs in the way that I did, but, yeah, my book came out before his did, so, <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, i got to say, too, I think, yeah, but you're, so the point now, though, that I feel about it, that it's very important in the way that, 
exactly for why you wrote it, that people have no idea um, the amount of money, the, the statistics that you, you state in the beginning are shocking to me, how much of a failure a lot of them are, and, and yet that how people don't know about the non-12-step rehabs that exist and how few of those there really are, how little um, uh, oversight. or The thing that I uncovered in my film in the research was when I interviewed John Hill, uh, you know, that there was no background checks done in California or in Pennsylvania um, to be a treatment counselor, and it was very shocking. And I think you probably read his reports that he published like a year ago. I don't know that. I did oh, not my. know that. Oh, Kyle. So, yeah, so I went up there and uh, interviewed him in Sacramento, and it's the Senate Oversight Committee, and he, you know, was a journalist or is one for 20 years, and there's a group of them. Anyway, the, I'll, I'll send you the link, but it's it was really horrifying, and I was so glad that somebody told this story. But the reason that I think, although, you know, you're not as hard on AA as I am, um, that it's important for people to hear what you're saying, and you sort of, you say it so that people can hear it, and it's the first time it's being said, I think, in a way, um, although I have far more critical of some of these other rehabs than you were here. I th- you know what I mean? I think that uh, from your point of view, however, a lot of people read it, right? A lot of people read this book. A lot of people bought it. I think you're... This yeah, well, and yeah. Book. Sure, sure. Right? Um, yeah, and I, you know, I, I wanted to be careful because I, these rehabs were kind enough to open their doors to me, which really surprised me. I... Kn- in the front of the book, I named the places that yeah. did open their doors to me, and right. places like Hazelden, Karen, which is kind of like the Hazelden of the East Coast, you know, it's yeah. a similar kind of um, traditional 12-step-based place, mm-hmm. um, Promises. I really was surprised at how receptive these places were to allow me to come visit um, most of them, not Promises, but most of them did allow me to sit in on client group sessions, I really was surprised at the client contact I was allowed to have. Um, and that took a lot of guts on their part to allow a, a writer who was writing a book like this to come in. And I told them up front, yeah. you know, I'm going to interview people who say that your facility saved their life, but I'm also going to interview people who said that it was a terrible experience. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm just mm-hmm. letting you know that up front. And they, you know, they still opened their doors willingly. Um, and I think I don't think that would have happened 12 years ago when I wrote Sober for Good. That so, um, I was really pleased. And you know, I one thing I commend Hazelden for was when I asked for clients to interview. I spent an entire week on one particular um, women's unit. And I asked, of course, they weren't going to give me names of the women on the unit, right. but I asked afterwards, do you think that you there's some way we could reach out to those women so that I could interview them privately, basically, without, you know, like, and, and what they did was send a letter out to each of those women. They sent it out so that those women could contact me if they chose to, mm-hmm. and they didn't select the women. Yeah, they didn't pre-select them like, oh, we know this one was doing really well. They sent it out to everybody on the unit so that, you know, somebody who was disgruntled with their treatment could respond to me. Um, you know, as opposed to other places that were more selective about the clients who they sent to me. So mm-hmm. again, you know, I I gave 
I just, you know, I didn't feel a need to drag places, names through the mud as I was actually writing the book. And I tended to talk about facilities when I'm actually writing the book in in terms of clusters, high-end 12-step programs tend to do this. You know, I would say that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, to make my point. Right, right. Um, the uh, the fact that in the beginning where you said inside the rehab tour started with practical recovery, they were one of the first uh, places I went to. And I, I, mine is really not about rehab, but I was so shocked to discover in 2009 that these other free options existed. And I felt it was, you know, almost borderline on criminal that um, no one knows and that people like myself – could have a family member um, or someone, a loved one, who really hates AA, it's not going to work, and that no one knows about SMART and moderation and harm reduction, women for sobriety, life ring. I mean, the three ones that are here in L.A. are SMART recovery, moderation management, and SOS. And, you know, I thought, this is disgusting. You know, people are really suffering AAs really has some serious, serious problems today, and people are really being harmed, and a lot of young people. So the fact that you, you know, you start off with, uh, you know, I don't know what made you decide it, but the fact that you have these other things in here, that people can read your book and, and find out what is out there, and then some of the stuff about the um, young people I thought was really powerful, uh, where you interviewed um, some young people, and they talked about, you know, what worked for them. Um, of all parts of the book, uh, you know, is there a part that, because I have a lot of listeners and I have a lot of people who listen to me who have been harmed by AA and left, and um, so those are sort of more of my followers. And But the part of the book that you, maybe you'd like to talk about, like a specific part that um, maybe might fit my listeners? Well, um well, first of all, you did mention the uh, because it often I'm pleased that you mentioned it. Um, a chapter that often doesn't people often don't ask me about in interviews is that there there's an entire chapter which could have turned into a book in itself that addresses the needs of young people, yeah. um, adolescents and young adults, um, and um, that's critically important. And we you know we really don't know what works well for them because there's been very little research. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is that the treatment industry has just kind of modified what they do for adults and assumed that it'll work for young people. And and there really isn't sound evidence, particularly that taking a 12-step model and modifying it for young people makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I address that in one entire chapter. And yeah. mm-hmm. I, you know, I found that there are a number of evidence-based models. Uh, there's a, uh, an approach called multidimensional family therapy, which is now growing, which, you know, doesn't look anything like the 12 steps. I mean, if they think it would help somebody or they might suggest it as a component if somebody wants to add that, you know, as an adjunct, but it is not the focus of the therapy. Oh, um, the, um, but multidimensional family therapy um Adolescent Community Reinforcement Approach. These are approaches that have been well-tested in multiple evidence-based studies mm-hmm. um, and shown to be highly effective. And they're approaches that involve the family, which makes complete sense when you're looking right. at an adolescent. 
right. and um, so you know, but but where are these places? I mean, they're few and far between, and it's frustrating. Yeah, where, are they? Are that, they, where, where are they? Well, yeah, and when I would go to places and you know find that the adolescent programs I visited were not using them. Or even when I would go to facilities and sit in, the, the adult facilities, and sit in on their family weeks or their family days and nights and ask them if they were using CRAFT, which is the Community Reinforcement and Family yes. Training mm-hmm. Approach by, right. developed by Dr. Robert Myers, which has been shown in many um, randomized controlled trials to be far more effective than Al-Anon and mm-hmm. Um, interventions, nobody, one, one administrator at a very famous rehab had never even heard of it. So uh, I sent him, a, you know, I sent him an article on it after I left. I mean, it's right. very disturbing. Yeah. Um, so. Is great. Craft is really great. Like I got this, you know, the, the, um, uh, the workbook and this, uh-huh. they had the smart workbook and then they have, there's a meeting in Los Angeles and then there's a, a family meeting that's held at Alternatives in Los Angeles. And yes, I really yes, yes I know alternatives. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, so, wow, go ahead, I'm sorry. So, I'm well, I think probably the the chapter that would really appeal to people is One Size That Doesn't Fit All, and mm-hmm. it's un, and the subtitle is How Cookie Cutter Approaches at Rehab Get in the Way. Right. Um, and it's really interesting because, as in all my books, what I do is I profile a person at the be- beginning of the chapter, um, and um, interestingly, it's a story of a guy who started out at a treatment program where, you know, basically he, he goes to an intensive outpatient program and, you know, the counselor assumes that everybody is the same and, um, he, you know, he, he, this is how he described it. Um, when I asked him to describe the program, he told me one of the messages was this. You're at the base of a mountain and you can climb it, but you're very likely to fail. And most people do fail. If you fail, you'll use again and die from it. You're in a hole you dug at the base of the mountain because you're an addict, alcoholic, and you and a lowly worm with no arms and legs. So start climbing, you lowly worm. See you next week in group. Oh. He went on. This is my interpretation of the message I received. Perhaps right. this is necessary and helpful for a person to realize the gravity of addiction, but I didn't find it to be helpful and it was surely less than empowering. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was his interpretation, but it, you right. know, often it is a very negative message, mm-hmm. and it was kind of, you know, he said, I realize that a lot of people had lost their licenses, were broke, smashed up their cars, but he said, that wasn't me. And it was, you know, not individualizing the approach. One of the things that was really upsetting was that at the end of the program, he was asked to design his own relapse program oh like what was going to happen God. next well actually it's it's important to he suggested he was that actually was was appropriate you know like what would you think would be appropriate for you and then this was a one-on-one session and then the counselor would provide input because it's good to ask the client what they think often they're not asked at all and we know that often the client or patient has some pretty good insights about what would be helpful so what one might say would be, well, I think I should exercise three times a week. I think I should avoid going, um, hanging out with, you know, Johnny, Billy, and Sam because they were, you know, using friends. I think I should, you know, go to two smart recovery meetings a week or, you know, whatever it is. 
Oh, and then the counselor might. Yeah. Okay. Your plan, like when you leave, not like. I thought yeah. You said right. 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 Relapse, and then the okay. counselor might chime right. in and add to it. So he pulls out his plan for what he thinks is a good idea. Right. The counselor doesn't even look at it and pulls out her plan from a drawer. Some, you know. So in other words, it was a cookie cutter thing that she gives to everybody. Right. So you know, and then on top of it. Um, you know, typically at a program, everybody gets AA. Um, mm. Now, interestingly, at this approach, at this program, he was. Let me just look here. Um, he he had attended AA and Smart Recovery, so there was some exposure. I think it was at least mentioned to him, and he was offered a choice. He went to both, and it was interesting that he ended up choosing AA. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the important thing is that people be given a choice. But as you said in the beginning, most people are not usually given a choice. Um, yeah. And I asked that question to people who I interviewed was, were you ever told about alternatives? And almost nobody said yes. Mm-hmm. And when they were given alternatives, they were usually some kind of a religious alternative, like you could go to your mm-hmm. church for support, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember one counselor at a famous program, he was actually a supervisor, I asked him, I said, well, do you ever refer to smart recovery? And he goes, mm-hmm. well, why would I refer there? I don't know anything about it. And I thought, I'm looking at this guy, and I'm thinking, right. he's got to be at least in his 50s. Yeah. It is your job to know about smart recovery. They are about to celebrate their 20th anniversary. Right. Um, how, it is your job just like it's my job as a nutritionist to know something about Weight Watchers, right? how can you not know about this? Because we know that, I have the figures here, um, 7 to 8 out of 10, let's see, most people drop out. Studies suggest that between 55 and 80% of people with alcohol dependence who are encouraged to attend AA while in treatment, so that's 6 to 8 out of 10, who are encouraged to attend AA while in treatment, will stop attending AA in less than a year. Mm -hmm. Knowing that, why would you not offer people alternatives for support? You know, it's it's the true believer phenomenon. AA helped me. We are 12-step-based. And, you know, so so anyway, this chapter really addresses, you know, the the one-size-fits-all nature. How did it come to be? Yeah, um, but it it looks at other components too. One nation under group treatment. Who says group treatment is for everybody? Right, right. They're finding there's a lot of people who don't want meetings. So, uh, uh-huh. for, for example, I know quite a few young people who they really don't want to go to meetings. Um, and even they started uh, a group at Alternatives for the Sinclair Method. And Claudia Christian was actually they had a doctor, and they were going to you know Claudia was going to be there once a week. And they found that the people who wanted to do moderation with uh, naltrexone and the Sinclair method, they don't want to come to meetings. They wanted to see a one-on-one therapist. And I think that what's, you know, so when I saw uh, Dr. Jaffe at my screening last week, he had told me that and uh, because they created one. But I think that people, there are now non-12-step addiction therapists that are really highly trained. And now that SMART is, like you said, 20 years old and SOS is really a support group, you know what I mean, for people who want to be abstinence. But I think there's a real growing need for me personally that the whole idea of harm reduction and moderation 
And the only thing that MM, moderation management as a program, um, has to be the model, but that has to be the first choice for young people, that nobody needs to be told and people don't want to be told that you can never drink again. You know, I think that the AA... Absolutely. Absolutely. What a terrible message to give a young person. You have a disease that you're Mm -hmm. going to have for the rest of your life. Right, right. Um, you know, what what an indictment for a young person. Uh, you said it made an interesting comment that there are now psychologists or, or individual experts who are trained. Guess what? They've been around for a long, long time. Um, I'm 62 years old. I have been um, abstinent for most of 30-some years. Mm-hmm. I have always, but it, it hasn't been a straight and narrow path for me. Yeah. Um, and I do now feel comfortable talking about this um, because I think it's helpful for other people to know. Right. I have always worked with an individual therapist that when people say, how did you overcome your drinking problem? Right. I have always done it. And now I have. I, I only changed because I've moved a number of times. I've now lived in one place for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Most of that time... I have had, I mean, sometimes I don't see him for six years, but um, I have had somebody, I I always say everybody needs a George in their life. I have seen the same psychologist um, who is a doctoral level psychologist who has expertise with addiction for 25 years. They have Mm -hmm. always been out there. Mm -hmm. Now, many, many psychologists, as I talk about in my book, that's another very important part of the book, is how do you find people who truly have expertise Mm-hmm. And I'm digressing. I'll come back to my story in a minute. But um, one of the m- most disturbing, the thing that seemed to disturb people the most about my findings, and actually other people find th- found this and I documented in my book, is the woeful training of most people who work in this field. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, you know, piece. most States do not even require a bachelor's degree to become an addiction counselor. Um, and when you think about the fact that most people with a serious substance use disorder have a co-occurring psych- psychological psychiatric problem, and we're putting people with this this very complex disorder disorders in the hands of somebody where their primary care treatment provider is an addiction counselor with a two-year degree with, you know, with unsophisticated training. Six-month degree from, well, some of them have a six-month degree from, you know, a UCLA extension program. It's it's unconscionable. It's unconscionable. It's very interesting. I'm now working at a place in um, Minnesota um, called Minnesota Alternatives. Um, I, they hired me to help develop a family program, so I went to a craft training. Mm-hmm. And um, it's actually a family support program. Um, so these people are already in treat, treatment, so we're using some of the craft principles for the right. family members. But anyway, um, it's really interesting because most of their therapists have a mental health degree and then they got addiction, you know, they they got addiction training and it's really interesting because it's very different than the way most other places are run. Right. Um it's the other, you know, anyway, it's 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 a completely different model than I've seen in most places that I visited and uh the outcomes seem to be quite different, more positive. But anyway, um the um 
so so it, you know the, the the training is really woeful. Many places that say they treat co-occurring disorders really don't. I mean, you mm-hmm. it was really upsetting to me that to see that it, if you are diagnosed even at a high end um, residential facility, if you they determine that you have they put you through these elaborate elaborate assessments and they do have mental health professionals well credentialed on staff right. so they put you through all these you know diagnostic procedures and whatnot assessments when you come in mm-hmm. and if they determine you have a co-occurring disorder which you may come in with and then they assess you again um, you may see um, a psychiatrist a few times and then they'll have a psychologist, and typically you will see that psychologist once a week um, if you have a co-occurring disorder. Hmm. Um, now I knew one woman who had 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 you know was having a horrible time sleeping, and she right. ha- was a victim of trauma, and she had to really really push to get some extra support at a very right. expensive place. Um, hmm. Typically at an individual counseling. Now this is including a psychologist. And a um, and individual sessions with an addiction counselor at a high end residential rehab I found typically works out to about five hours a week or even less. Wow. Now you think about paying thirty thousand dollars a week for, oh for I mean a month a month thirty thousand or more. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's not. Um, it's it's pretty disturbing. So anyway, I think that back to the notion of finding an individual therapist. Mm-hmm. For with with expertise um, with addiction, I think is a great idea, and I think it's underrated. Um, it's funny, it's interesting that the knee jerk reaction, and I, it may be, I, I think that's how I open the book, um, is when somebody needs help with a substance use disorder, the knee jerk reaction is go to rehab, go to rehab. You have to go to treatment. You have to go to treatment, and it's interesting because personally that never occurred to me. Um, and a, a radio producer of a big radio show that I did for NPR, was, mm-hmm. when she did a pre-interview, she was shocked. She goes, why didn't it occur to you? And I said, I don't know. It just never occurred to me to go to treatment. Um, yeah. And it's, so you know, it was... It's not, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like I, yeah. you know, I, I went into AA or went into it. It sounds like I went into the Army. But you know, <laughs> uh, it was not like it was. It was a fellowship. Uh, it was a group of people. There was no hardcore go to any meetings, and it was 1975. It was Hawaii, so it wasn't entrenched by you know the Pacific Group or some cult group that's here on the West Coast that was controlling meetings and what people said. So it was very laid back. It was a support group, and but then later, you know, things. I mean, uh, it, it just was very, very different. And I think that um, I just lost my train of thought. That it's so weird, um, but. You were talking about about individual therapists and um, um, yeah. Well, it's all right. I, I just was so much to... yeah, a lot of stuff. But um, it was so different, and people didn't lay a trip on you but... oh, about how it never occurred to me to go to rehab. Oh yeah, what, about rehab? Thank you, thank you so much. So there was only there was one detox on the island, and then there was one kind of sort of wasn't called rehab, right, back then? And uh, they didn't uh-huh. call it rehab. didn't exist. It may be called treatment center. and uh, But it was run by people in the program, and it was run by a few people who were like real psychiatrists and stuff. But it wasn't until they passed 
a law that allowed insurance to pay for um, treatments, 30-day treatments, or I think it was even more. Where they all, everybody got excited who was in AA. They were like, oh, now we can get a job, you know, doing uh, this 12-step work. And then there was, you know, what, who could do it and did you need training? And there became this whole, you could see this monetizing of something that was really just like a support group. But that later, you know, when I was thinking about this, how I got stuck in there so long, that, you know, but about seven or eight months when the pink cloud faded, they're like, well, you know, you just need to do it this way. And I said, no, no, I did it the way you told me to do it the first time. And, like, these stupid steps are not helping me with how I feel. And I began to feel worse. And then I was like, okay, um, you know, feeling worse and getting more depressed. And they were like, well, it gets worse before it gets better. Now, mind you, I'm abstinent. And I'm already like a model AA citizen at 18 right, years old right. because I want to just not drink and I want to just hang around with other sober young people. Right. But there's something really fucked up about AA. And this is what, you know, for someone who was in it for 36 years and abstinent for 37, and um, that why after I was preyed on and 13 stepped twice, why did I not walk away? Why did I not say, oh, my God, these people and this thing, because it was not called a program back then, and it was called, it says Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, their strength, and their hope. It doesn't say Alcoholics Anonymous is a treatment program for people. You know what I mean? And so it's Well, and it's not. It's not a treatment program. It's not a treatment program. And so very, you know, really straight out that, the first time I did a fifth step even was not healthy. I felt worse than before. I did it with a woman I didn't know who everybody thought is was Is that the making amends step? Well, no, the fifth one is when you read like you're like how like they were saying things to me like, Well, look at what happened maybe in third grade or fifth grade, did you ever steal candy? Or like I was like grasping uh. for stuff to write in this fourth step and the fifth step is where you read it to somebody but the trauma like you know it was really sad but in you know i've been gone for three years and the deprogramming has you know really been a a fabulous road for me but there are times like even my editor said people are going to say why did she stay but i say to myself i'm laying in bed and i love the story where you got inspired in a dream you know i think that's so cool <laughs> right, you know, I mean, that's so cool yeah. because my husband are like that with our dreams. But I was laying in bed the other night and I said, "Why, Monica? You know, like that happened, and it wasn't is AA that fucked up? That that stupid stuff they read that that stuff gets in so deeply that I could not think and and see that it was not only those people, but it was the program that was bad, that it's not a healthy thing for a young person. And that clearly, when I finally had four years, I looked around, and by then the rehab treatment was really starting to rev up its big engines. It was 1979, and now my sponsor and her husband became the big counselors at Hinamaka, which became one of the best, you know, I mean, it was in a beautiful setting on the windward side of Oahu, but, you know, I looked at all of them, and they started to do, like, I think it was the beginning of 12-step facilitation. And I said, you guys are fucking out of your mind. You're going to take this shit from – like, even that – I didn't say it like this and think, but there was uh-huh. something at least smart in me that I said, I've already worked your steps in and out over and over again. I've been of service. You can't be of more service than I've been. And you know what? Like, that's not going to fix the issues that I have from my childhood trauma. It's not going to fix the issues that I have right now with how I relate to men. Uh, you know what? I need other help. But yet it was still so discouraged 
to to get a therapist back then, you were looked at, well, you weren't working your program good enough. And if you really studied, if you need to go to a big book study, I mean, the the stuff that I went through, I needed therapy so badly at that time. But I began to search, and there were other books, and I started to read other books, and I was like, okay, I need other help. Um, and I guess the part of the story is like I was just like, why? I mean, we can't go back and change the past. But it's right. like... I think that it's damaging. I think that AA would have killed my son. That was one of the reasons that I saw AA in a new way when my one of my own children began to have an issue around alcohol. And I went into AA and saw it in, you know, 2009. And I said, oh, my God, this is really, really negatively based. And well, I'm, and I think it's, I think it's really, I mean, it's so sad that you had that experience. And I, you know, some people do feel that it you know, have you know, describe it as a cult-like experience. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, I know people who are close to me who, you know, and I think that AA has evolved. You know, I may be wrong because I don't, I mean, I did go to meetings. I tried, gave it a shot. I didn't get involved yeah. in the way you did. I went mainly for support, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't, you know, get into the program. But I, um, I, I you know I get the sense that it's invo- it's really evolved in terms of um its stance on getting psychological care and psychiatric medications and whatnot and but I you know I know people who use the program in a really positive and healthy way um so but I I do have concerns about young people and and parents really knowing what it is that they're getting involved in. And again, there are some young people who use it in a positive way, but one of the concerns that I raised at the facilities I went to, and it shocked me that it was as if it had never occurred to them, I said, what about sponsors? And I'm on the board of a sober school in my town, of a sober high school, and I raised it here. I mean, I said, don't you worry about I said, look, there's a lot of really nice, cool people at AA, but there's also a lot of unhealthy people at AA. And you're connecting. We would no more have volunteers or anybody come into this school mm-hmm. and work with our kids without a background check, right. and you're encouraging these children to have sponsors. And when I raised it at the treatment facilities, it, it was as if they had never thought of it. And, you know, I have somebody who's very close to me involved in AA, and she said, I would never connect my kid with a sponsor without having them over to the house first, without spending a lot of time with them. And parents don't, if you're not somebody who's familiar with AA, you don't even know that a sponsor isn't a professional person. You don't know to ask the questions. Well, do you know know that the story in San Diego where the guy, I mean, they just paid out $6 million to that guy who was in AA who was sponsoring those boys who were 13, who he was said he was an AA sponsor, and he was taking them back to his house and molesting them. You know that story? No, I didn't. I didn't yeah, I'll send you the link to that. Yeah. Well, here's, here's the thing that, I mean, I think that's horrible, and I was reading that part in your book, which I think is such a good point, that uh, when interviewing, even what they call man on the street, when you go out and you ask people, you know, do you think AA is run by a professional? And they were like, or AA or what a sponsor is, People thought, I mean, I even had a young person who I was shocked when she said, oh, yeah, for sure it is. And I was like, I mean, I, you know, I was like, wow. So we have people who are journalists who work for CBS who thought that AA was run by a professional and have a young lady who's 20 
on the street in Santa Monica who goes to, you know, she goes to college here, and she was not a street person, but, you know, we just do man on the street where you ask people what they think just to get that kind of feeling. Um, But this is what I uncovered, that sexual predators and violent offenders are being court-ordered to Alcoholics Anonymous. That that actually wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. and, and so on top of so we have murders that are occurring. So that my my problem yeah. is is that when you have this and then you have a seventeen year old like sent there uh, by the courts because she got drunk on Venice Beach, right? Uh, that this this is a bad idea, and that these not only so we have women murdered. That's why I'm making the film. So we have a court ordered guy who's a violent offender. You have some lovely thirty year old who actually gets sent by a real hospital to a rehab that all she gets for $800. Now, Blue Cross paid $800 a day for her treatment, and all she got was driven to AA meetings. Wow. Yeah, wow. it's pretty outrageous. So, oh, there, yeah. And, there's, and she was there's, murdered by a guy who was court-ordered oh. to AA for over 22 years. He was sent there 55 times. So that murder trial is still, it's still in process or pending. Hopefully it's going to begin wow. in September. But I think that people don't know who's there, and even the women who I created the Make AA Safety stuff when I left AA, but none of us knew this. I mean, I didn't even find that out until I left to do the research. But the other thing I learned from an insider AA trustee woman who's an amazing woman, every time I would see her, she'd say, the parole officers are telling her that the sex offenders are coming they come in groups, like, you know, sex offenders are like, you know, I guess they're like packs of wolves or they run in packs. They're going and targeting AA. So they're, you have the guys that are being sent there. And then you have uh, men who are actually going there because, you know what, it's, they don't have to take her out for a date. They don't even have to buy her coffee sometimes. And that's wow. the part that I was so shocked about, that the world wow. needs to know and your friends who are in AA need to know about, and it's happening in states all over the United States. Wow. Like the, the stories are, yeah, it's like, you know, I was yeah. like, wow. Yeah. Every time, you know, and she's trying to make it safer internally still, and I give her, you know, a lot of kudos for it because there's a lot of resistance from the good old boys there. But, you know, she is determined, and I, I hope that she does, you know, finally make change. But, you know, you are in a world, you're very involved in it there. So, I mean, once my film comes out, are you in Minnesota? Yes. You are in Minnesota, yeah. Yep. That, um, yep. You know, people will see the film and uh, and be educated, and that AA will be forced. Like you said, Al-Anon with Alateen created safety policies for Alateen where they do you know, mandate, well, not mandate, but they, you have to get a background check if you're uh-huh. going to be involved uh-huh. at every level, right, with Alateen. But you, it's a good thing you brought it up and tell them that, no, 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 you should never. And, in fact, when you said, oh, that when your friend who's in AA, she thinks that that's a good idea that to come to her house and she's going to get to know her, well, or them, there was a woman who um, she refused to be in the film, but she knew a guy for three years. And they were at barbecues at each other's house in lovely suburbs of Chicago. And she hired him to come over and do work at her house. And he raped her. Wow. She knew him well, before. you know, I mean, I, I mean, the truth is this could happen in any area of life, something like that. Yeah, but no, no, no. no. The one thing I also disagree with that is so, yeah, rape could happen. But the setup for bringing strangers and trusting yes. them more because yes. they're in yes. AA, yes. you know what I mean? It's right. like... When you meet them in yes. church, you want to trust them more because you think they're good right. Christians, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, there's a little, you know, it's a little bit of a different Yeah, I setup. hear you. I um, hear you. So 
But I think that I'm glad when I read that in your book, I thought it was really important because yep. your book is more um, in, in, in the center than I'm more, you know, now like, you know, really uh, an activist for um, exposing Alcoholics Anonymous right. and what's going on right. in it. But because your your book is more, um, you know, you, I don't know what the word is, but you just come, you serve it up in a way that many, many people will hear you. And uh, I think that it's important because it was the first book that came out like this. And, well, and um, I, you know, I tried to to do that also in Sober for Good too. Is yeah, I you know that, that. I, I never. Yeah, I'm going to get that next, and maybe after I read that, we I could have you on because I haven't sure, had time to sure. read that one. Um, um, I, but the you know the, the the a lot of the things that I found were, I mean, my opinion is that a lot of the when you look at some of the. Um, a philosophy and the rigidity and the things that are said and go on with the disease model um, mm-hmm. are actually things that are not in the original teachings of AA. The putting aside some of the safety concerns that you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. there are things that have happened to um, that have gone on because of treatment. Right. And I heard, you know, people said to me things like, you know, it's what treatment has done to AA. And, um, you know, and, and people said things to me like, you know, Bill W. would roll over in his grave if he knew that this stuff was going on because it wasn't meant to be AA for everybody. You know, he believed in multiple paths. And it wasn't meant to be, you know, even the the even sponsors weren't in the original AA. And there were lots of things if you read the original teachings we're not this hard and fast, and even the disease model. If you read some of the the um, historical papers that have been written by William H. White, I don't know if you've looked at them, but that really dig into this and look at how the some of the rigidity has been born, and a lot of it has come out of the treatment industry. AA wasn't meant to be adopted by treatment and laid on people. And, um, you know, the good news is that I think, some of it is slowly changing. Um, I write um, twice a month. I write a column for ProTalk, which is a col- which is a column that is it's an editorial platform sponsored by Rehabs.com, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of writers from academia on that platform. And I do a column twice twice a month. I just did a three-part series on basically AI alternatives. I looked at mandating um, oh, great. Oh, pro-talk. Pro uh, mm-hmm. If you go to rehabs.com and then uh-huh. there's a, there, they have a, um, up at the top of the page, there's a link for pro-talk, which is professional's okay. talk. Great. Stanton Peel has a column. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of it. Lance Dodes has a column, Dodis, whatever, however you say his last yeah. name. I think it's Dodis. Um, um, but anyway, there's you know there's a lot of interesting columnists. I don't agree with all of them, but that's okay. We like controversy. Right. Um, but we're bringing new people on all the time. And so I just did a three-part series on um, – I looked at court mandates to AA and the oh, illegality yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. And But interestingly, in, in one of the – I think it's the second part that I did – I look, you know, I have a quote from William Cope Moyers, who is an executive vice president, I think, at Hazelden, a lovely guy, but you know, um, you know, staunchly active, active in the twelve steps. But he did a column recently. Of, um, I'm friendly with him. You know, you get to know these yeah, guys yeah. when you live in Minnesota. He's just a right, sweetheart. Right, right. Um, I hear you. But I he you. he did a column recently. He has a syndicated column, and in it, he basically 
embrace the concept of, I wouldn't say embrace harm reduction, but he talked about how we have to accept different strokes for different folks. And I believe he was talking about somebody who um, was in AA but who occasionally had a drink. And I was, like, shocked to see it. And at the end of it, he said, you know, it's, it's, it, the gist of it was we have to stop being so rigid. And oh, I, really I quoted him, yeah. and I thought, you know, it's time, that, you know, that we stop right. this, you know. Yeah, you and know what? It, it, yeah, it, it is. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, finish. But that is no. Very, well, very no. Very and then, terrible. and lastly, yeah. he did a column, and I posted something. He said somebody um, sent him a letter and said that his daughter had overcome an opioid addiction, mm-hmm. but that she was she never had a problem with alcohol, but she is having she is drinking now. And she's not having a problem with it, but you asked me to be on your panel. Do you want me on your panel because my daughter has relapsed? And I, and, and William said, well, technically she has relapsed. And I wrote to him and said, she, technically she has not relapsed. Right. Because if you look at the DSM, it doesn't right. have anything. She is recovered from her right. opioid use disorder. Right. She's not yeah. having problems with alcohol. Right. You know, sorry, stop saying this. Right. You know, I mean, so. there is a whole, I tell you where there should be a study. So because I left, right, and I w- traveled around the country interviewing people that were harmed and sexually assaulted and stuff, this other group of people started to contact me who've left AA like I have who are all now drinking moderately. So we're talking about people who were circuit speakers, 30 years. I drink really moderately wow. after 37 years of abstinence. It's a joke. i got to tell you, it's a joke. My husband said, oh, my God, you were never an alcoholic, Monica. You, I mean, it is, of course, I stopped on my own. I drank for, what, four and a half years as a teenager? I would have, I, I grew you out of kid. it. You were a kid. Matured, you were a kid. You matured, you matured out. I was drinking like a, yeah. and, and the fact that, I, but there's a lot, there's, I'm you not would've. just the only one. There's a lot of people, and, but most of us who had decades, also, I think there's a lot of components. You're respecting alcohol for what it is. I look at it as, a, it's a beverage. Like, it's not, uh-huh. you know, this whole thing, uh-huh. we've made it into this big, big, bad drug. It's a beverage. It needs to be respected, but you've got to deprogram. You can't believe this stuff. And I love SMART for that it's a lapse, not a relapse. The, the, all yes. the black and white thinking that's in AA and SMART and craft, they have all these lovely words of, like, even somebody with me who had all the therapy that I had. And, I mean, I had a lot of therapy. I still see my therapist like you have somebody you've known for a long time that there were words still in my vocabulary that when I spoke to my children are not a good idea. They're still, you know, uh, in, intense words. And, I mean, you know, they're, it's more the black and white that's saying something. In my next piece, up, my next piece is going to be on the negative words, the dirty words we use, like clean. Somebody's clean. Mm-hmm. When they overcome an addiction, I'm going to look at the horrible words we use. I don't even like relapse. Yeah, no, I hate that word. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like people are, oh, yeah, oh, so like when I first met Tom Horvath and we were talking or interviewing and, you know, it just said, well, what did you learn from that? You know, I said, well, what do you, if you say if you're a kid, you know, they're doing really well and then they get like really drunk and say, well, you know, what did you learn? And, well, you know, I feel horrible. I was throwing up all night and I went to the bathroom yeah. all night. Yeah. And you just go, okay, well, you know, maybe next time you'll... Oh, I mean, I've learned so much from everybody who's had these, you know, from Ken Anderson and harm reduction to Stanton's books, How to Addiction-Proof Your Child. I was like, Stanton, like, why didn't I read your book, like, you know, 10 years ago? Yeah. It's okay, but I think that, you know, we have, like, five minutes left, and uh, I would talk really quickly, if we could, about, because I was, about court mandating. 
You touch on that in your book. You want to talk a little bit about that for a couple of minutes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I interviewed some poor guy who was forced to go to, um, it was actually a Christian program, which I don't name, um, and, um, and oh, God, it was just a nightmare, and um, yeah. it was that or jail for a long time. And I read it was, story. <laughs> yeah, it was horrible. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say about it. It's against the law to force, you know, numerous higher courts have ruled that, you know, it's against the law to coerce people to go to twelve-step based, twelve-step either treatment or to go to AA. Mm-hmm. And it go, still goes on. And um, you know, I, it hasn't been ruled that to be the case in all states, but the precedent right. is there. Right. And I think what happens is, you know, number one, a lot of people don't know about the law. Mm-hmm. Um, I, at, at this point in time, I think any counselor should know about it. Right, um, right. In this particular case, a social worker was knew, of course, knew about it, but um, he, the the judge, absolutely would not back down, and these people are not usually in a position to be able to fight it legally. Right. They they can't afford it. They just right. can't afford it. Um, so um, another case where a woman um, belonged to um, an unusual religious sect, and she went went to a twelve step based program, and they um, she did everything, you know. And again, this was referred by a social worker who I know and respect, and he referred the case to me because he was so disturbed by it. Right. And um, she was in the program, and she was trying to toe the line because she wanted to get her child back. And right. um, she was kicked out at the end for not basically subscribing to their definition of a higher power. Wow. Um, and they came, police arrived, and put her in shackles. And mm, thank God for the social awful. worker who, you know, stepped in and helped her. And the state actually supported the woman. Okay. But... You know, this kind of stuff that goes on is just horrible. And she was trying to make her higher power fit in with their concept of a higher power. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Yeah. But it is. anyway. The pieces that need to be, I'm glad it was in your book. And it's a big message in my film. And I will be doing, like, I made some pamphlets that I, you know, hand out to people all the time about what people's rights are, what the seven other free options are. And I include the Sinclair method as an option, you know what I mean, with the use of naltrexone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I think that Bill Wilson um, would actually have tried naltrexone if he were still alive today. I think he really oh, would Oh, yeah. I think he would have. But I want to thank you. Uh, I, I am. We have 90 seconds left. I have been talking to Anna Fletcher, and she is an author of Insight Rehab. As well as, I'm going to name your other books because here I have your your, your website is beautiful, by the way. I don't know. Who Thank made you. It, but it's really pretty. So she, she wrote. Thank Inside you. I'll tell him. You're welcome. You're welcome. Really nice. Thin for life, thin for life day book. Eating thin for life, weight loss and sober for good. And I really, really, it was really great having you on, Anne. And I would like to have you on again after I get sober for good. Well, thank you. And just one last thing I want to say is that I don't, you know, it's just, it's not a book that just talks about problems. I also try to offer some solutions and advice for people Mm -hmm. about how to, you know, what do you do here? What might you do? How can you get the best given the situation? Yes. yes. We know the situation isn't ideal, so what can you do now? So. Right. I try to and offer it's, some. It's out in paperback now, too, correct? Yes, it it's is. Yep. Yeah, great. Yep. Okay, 
thank you so much, and I look thank forward you. to seeing you again. It's been really okay, great. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next week on uh, Blog Talk Radio. We are going to do a show that is going to address uh, how do you undo um, what happens if you were in AA a long time. Again, that was Ann Fletcher, author. We'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.